following audio entertainment is brought to you by the kind folks at Tyrell Corporation, reminding you that civil registration isn't just common sense, it's the law. Welcome to Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast. I am your host, Jamie, and I'm joined by hosts... Patrick Green. Been waiting for this episode. And Dan Ferlito. And today we're here to talk about Denis Villeneuve, or Denis Villeneuve, um, based off that video that you sent, Dan. And we, this is a part of our larger conversation, our larger series on Blade Runner 2049. And we've kind of been on and off, but this is an episode that we've been talking about for a while. We're very interested uh, there's a lot of discussion in terms of how we first met Denny in our own way, what films we saw, what we knew about him, what we didn't, who, who, who is he, where is he from, why, why him for, for Blade Runner? And so we're going to get into that discussion, but I'm going to pass it off to Patrick. Yeah, you know, a note about pronunciation here. This has been, as people listening to the show know, an ongoing struggle for some of us. Um, Jamie famously did the first four episodes calling him Dennis Villanueva. Oh, <laughs> We've up. been gradually getting better <laughs> about it. But today, Jamie was on the ball. That was, like, perfect. He did so the duh, we, yeah. So, so we've, it's... We've made it. That E sound is like the E, is like the A at the beginning of the English word again. So, duh. Dunny Villeneuve, but you know what? It's gonna sound like shit every time I say it, and I'm sorry. We have Ugh. listeners in Canada, <laughs> listeners in French-speaking Canada, who will write into us. I love you, Reno. I apologize in advance. I'm gonna screw some of these pronunciations up tonight. But uh, what I'm not gonna screw up is uh, professing my undying love for Denis Villeneuve's filmography and what he's brought to cinema, and why I think he really uh, deserves all of the accolades that he's gotten in recent years especially since you know he really broke out in about 2013 in, in sort of english speaking cinema um this is an episode that we have pushed back a little bit um uh, on because of of me there there you know tropical storm isaiah uh, hit us extremely hard up in new england kind of unexpectedly uh and we lost power all week so so this has been i, I appreciate dan uh, and jamie giving me a few days to kind of get back on my feet so we could talk about denis for this episode and, uh, and if anybody out there listening to this still doesn't have power yet, um, good luck, because it, it sucks. Patrick, you said you had some questions. You're yeah, I, I, well, so I, I had a question, uh, which is that I want to know from each of you, if you could sum up Denis as a filmmaker in one single word, what would that one single word be? And I'm not going to let you say ambiguity, because I did watch that uh, the video that Dan sent, which is very good, and which we will share in our social media. Um, so you'll still know this video I'm talking about. I, was, I watched the first five minutes. I, I think it's it. clinical. I don't think it's, I think it's, it's like, all it's like a little bit of film class coursework. It's cool. Maybe. I like it. Talk about production design. I don't dislike it. I just, it didn't, I didn't feel like I was getting to know anything about him as a film, as a, as an auteur. I felt like this was very, this is, you know, here is this aesthetic and look, there's a light for color. Jamie so fucking hates this video. I think it's pretty good. Anyway, what the, why was I even talking about? Oh yeah, so 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 in this video he mentions they're, they're talking about who he is as a director, right? And uh, and he says, you know, like if there's one word that describes Dooney, he gets it, it becomes Dooney by the end of this video. Um, he says it's ambiguity, which to be fair is probably the word that I would have chosen. So I'm going to take that word away from us. 
And I want you guys to go one by one, um, starting with Dan. And I want you to tell me what's <laughs> what's the one word that you because you're shaking your head, Jamie. What's the one word uh, when you think of Denny? You think of? Uh, I would use the adjective deeply. Uh, for one, because Denny's very very famous for um, his his many of his actors have mentioned how. Um, I forget which particular interview I was reading and which actor was saying this, but I've, I've heard it a couple of times where when he's really happy with a scene on set, you know, he will say like, I deeply, deeply, deeply love like that performance or that take or whatever. And when you hear three deeplys from Denny, that's when you know that he's like satisfied and the job is done. Um, so I'd say because of that, because it's, it's um, one of the things he says a lot, but also because I think that his work is a very deep exploration of um, many things that I'm sure we'll talk about, but that's the word I would pick. I love that. That's, that's amazing. And there's some really great anecdotes in uh, the, uh, the heart at the um, art and soul of Blade Runner uh, where some of the people in the crew mentioned the deeply, like the deeply test. If, if there are enough deeplys, you know that you've done a good job. And I, and that, that's, I think that's a really good choice. Jamie, what about you? What, what's a word you associate with, with any? Well, it's interesting that you bring this up because as I was reading more about his films and ensembles and other things, I, I, I was thinking about me seeing his films and, what's touched me about him as a filmmaker, it's the word tender. I think he's a very tender-hearted man. I think he explores darkness, but he does it from a really beautiful, tender place that is full of love and and um, grace as he explores the human experience. So tender is my word. Definitely, yeah. I would say, for me, uh, I would say unflinching. And I mean that in like the kind of the literal sense where, um, you know, a lot of the times when we're confronted with things, not even necessarily violent things, but things that are hard to um, understand or hard to accept or just sort of hard to comprehend, you know, we flinch from them, right? We kind of avert our eyes or we kind of want to change the subject or we want to um, have something easy delivered to us. And with Denis' films, starting with Ensemble, which is the first one that I saw of his, um, I, I would characterize all of them as being unflinching. There, he's totally unafraid to show us things that might be very difficult to accept. He's unafraid to show us things that might be difficult to understand at first, but he does it all in service of getting at very deep truths about the human condition and about what film can do. And um, and I, in terms of that, like I think of Sicario a lot. I, Sicario, I think, is one of those movies that um, I think for some reasons, for various reasons, has been sort of forgotten about in some circles. Um, and I, I don't think that it should be. I think it's a great film. And I, and I think it's a great example of this unflinchingness, right? From the very beginning, when, you know, we're introduced to this crime scene that's really, you know, kind of terrifying unfolding in this, you know, quiet suburban neighborhood. And then there's that explosion. And it is just like this incredibly graphic, terrifying thing. But in the hands of a lesser filmmaker, it would become uh, fetishized, right? Like either the violence would become something glorified or something that was sort of over the top or something that was really focused on or it becomes something that was cut away from or we kind of used our imagination. With, with Denis, he says, you know, violence is real and this is what it looks like. And then we move on. And I think, um, and that, that characterizes a lot of his films. And I think in thematic ways too, because I think a lot of what I love about his work is that he brings us to a place in character or brings us to a place in thought where it would be very easy to give us something easy, you know, where it'd be very easy to give us like a foothold and be like, okay, you know, this was just a dream or this is, you know, it's, it's time to move on. And, and then he throws something at us that's even harder to digest. 
and I think Ensemble is a great example of that. I think Prisoners is a great example of that. Um, and I think that all of these films have in common this unflinching respect for us as audience members and this unflinching desire to see truth on screen. Yeah, I certainly think he does one thing that um, anybody can appreciate from any artist or creator, whether they're writing a novel, making um, a video game, or um, doing film, and it's treating your audience with, respecting your audience's intelligence, right? Um, yeah, he's not afraid to tackle uh, I mean, you know, if you look at his films, and I can't speak for prior to Polytechnique because I haven't gotten, I haven't dug deep enough back into his his Canadian and, and French language film that he did before that, but I suspect that the topics were still dark and he still dealt with violence and the darker side of human nature. Um, you know, none of his films are overall uplifting now that's not to say that you can't get positive things out of them obviously 2049 has some positive messages and ends on a relatively positive note so does arrival so does prisoners to a certain extent but you know it's in it's still through this cover of just darkness and i think that he really likes to explore the more complicated side of the human psyche um and i really appreciate that um but it's you know it's not for everyone and it's done very tactfully and it's done respectfully but it's interesting that this is the side of human nature that he's most attracted towards exploring and that might be because it's the most complex side of it um i i have a couple of quotes that i pulled up of his and one of them i think is appropriate here we were talking about uh sort of patrick was talking about like how some of the things he shows would be turned gratuitous maybe by another uh, filmmaker or another production and how they're really not. And he made this comment about violence. He said, quote, I hate violence. And I think that violence is meaningful. If you see the impact of violence on victims, I'm interested in the impact. I'm not interested in the show. I don't want to make a show of violence. I mean, I've been in contact with people who suffered from the trauma of war when I use violence in a movie, it's just to express the power, the impact of it. Um, and I think that's really true. You know, when you look at um, films that deal with, um, you know, war, violence, sometimes rape, you know, really intense subjects, um, he's really showing you uh, the effect that it has on the characters. And sometimes, like Enemy is a great example of, um, sometimes he wants to show you things from the subconscious point of view of a character um that 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 particular film i think is a little bit different from his other ones it kind of stands out to me and i'm sure we'll talk about it but um yeah it's it's really incredible what he does with very dark subject matter i want to uh, jump in for one second because that's actually i i wasn't even going to get around to it but but talking about sicario what i was kind of alluding to which is people sort of forgetting about it i think is because if you don't know the movie if you haven't seen the movie it seems like something that goes against uh like it's it seems like it's this sort of critique of you know mexican cartels like or of like mexico like it's this sort of like otherizing thing or it's using the you know the drug the war on drugs for this sort of patriotic reasons or something if you don't know the movie and you just sort of read the plot description of it, it seems like it's just this sort of like, you know, gung-ho, like let's go guns blazing, you know, American, go kill the drug people down there, you know. But you watch the movie and the whole thing is completely the antithesis of that. The whole thing is this very artful study on what violence does to people. 
and how violence just births violence over and over and over again. And then the deeper unflinching truth in that to me is that there are also people who thrive in that environment, right? That there are people like, you know, Josh Brolin's character who they were sort of born for that. Like they are, they are not glorified as heroes or anything and they're not some sort of superhuman. They just do really well in the chaotic, dark, terrible heart that is an ongoing war that can't really end until two sides just agree to stop talking to each other, right? And I think, um, and then the flip side of that, of course, being Benicio Del Toro's character in that film, who uh, also like can only really exist in that chaotic environment. Um, and both of them are completely alone in the world and miserable outside of that environment. Anyway, I just think, I just think, I think Sicario is an easy movie to overlook because it seems on its face like a less interesting film than it actually is. And I really would say like people listening to this who don't know Sicario, um, watch it, like put your, check your reservations at the door because it is actually a very lyrical film that is very violent and is very difficult, but is just is beautifully, beautifully rendered and very meditative and that you will never be able to get it out of your head again. And really Sicario at the end of it, it's an indictment on the system you know, once it's explored deeper and deeper and deeper and the protagonist, which is played by what's her name? I can't remember her name right now. Emily Blunt. Emily Blunt. Yeah. yeah. She goes deeper and deeper and deeper into this underworld and then discovers who the players are in this underworld. And it's shocking, but it's not surprising at the same time. So, uh, Sicario was full of surprises. In fact, I didn't see it for a minute because first of all, I didn't know who Denny was at the time as a filmmaker but second, I don't like, I won't watch Narcos, I won't watch Mafia films, I won't watch any of that stuff, because I don't like the subject matter. It just seems endless and gratuitous and violent, and then you start cheering for the anti-hero who's this violent, you know, um, czar of what, whatever, like whatever cartel he worked for. I just won't do it, I won't engage it. I think, I think it's um, tragedy is entertainment most of the time. But Sicario is not that. Sicario is a in my in my experience of it, it is a almost a forensic look at what this life is and who's involved in it and really what's at, at the core of these cartels moving drugs in and out of America and who who has a stake in that and uh, it was again it was really shocking to me by the end of it I wasn't by the end of that film I didn't it was a completely different film that I expected to see yeah, and it, it's it's really great, and even the character, you know, I can't remember. I wish I could remember her her name in the in the movie, but it's just Kate, her, Kate, just yeah, Agent Mason. her own exploration, her own discovery. You're there with her, discovering and discovering and discovering, much like you we are with Kay, and he's discovering more, and he's discovering more, and he's discovering a system, and he's discovering who's playing into that system, you know, who that who depends on that system. Very similar journeys going of course in vastly different environments one's based in essentially reality and the other one isn't um but yeah i i could not recommend sicario enough but it isn't for the faint of heart for sure but i mean none and none of his films are really to be honest well i think arrival is certainly it is but but arrival like arrival is the only movie i can think of of his that i could like show my kids for sure and and even a child dies in the first 10 minutes of that none of it's not gratuitous it's not bloody it's not no but it is but even 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 that like feel good quote-unquote kind of optimistic film that he has is is really that's like i mean that is a heartbreaking Mm -hmm. 
heartbreaking super film. tragic. Yeah. Oh yeah, and so the ending tragic. of it is just even though the ending is hopeful, it also ends with the heartbreak with this because no matter what, it's looping back again, and mm-hmm. now we're back where we were. And yeah. that I, again, like, I mean, I, I look at and I, I know we got to get to his bio in a second, but I do want to talk for one more moment though about this this thing that he does and he does this with in such a great way with alejandro uh gillick the character that benicio del toro plays in sicario where you have um a character who's presented as one thing and then as the story progresses is is revealing himself to be so many other things and then by the end of it like he keeps making you feel like, okay, I'm going to be, this will be my cipher for this story. Like, this is the character that I'm going to root for. Because, I mean, in Sicario, like, who are you rooting for? Kate? I mean, I guess, but she's also, like, she's involved with this operation now. She's in over her head. She's making bad decisions, too. And then you think, like, okay, well, here's, like, you know, Benicio del Toro. He's, like, this fucking incredible actor. This guy is, like, super good at what he does. He's, like, so cool. He's very mysterious. They're giving you all of these kind of trappings of the character you should be, like, excited about, right? Um, And then he commits these atrocities, like at the dinner table in the end of the film, like these actual up close atrocities. And you're like, okay, I get it. Violence is actually not something that is going to be glorified by this film. Right. Um, And I I think just every character that he gives us is never just the character that we are presented with in the beginning of the film. And and I am, I have such respect for that. And the last thing I'll say before I shut up is that uh, I think another thing, and and I will also move on from Sicario momentarily, but another thing about Sicario that really marks him, and marks all great directors to me, is the personnel that he manages to attract and retain to come back and work with him again and again and again. And to me, Sicario is a great kind of early-ish example because that was 2015. So that's not, you know, that's before 2049. It's before Arrival, which was nominated for Academy Award. It's before he had this kind of really huge breakout. But Sicario was a big moment of crystallization for him. And look at the cast, right? You have Emily Blunt, Josh Brolin, Benicio Del Toro. You have uh, Daniel Kaluuya, who is just an incredible actor great cast you have roger deakins as a cinematographer you have johan johansson scoring the film you have just all of these amazing creative people who are coalescing around this one dude who came from outside the system right he came from canadian cinema which is a lot of the time kind of not in the same conversation as hollywood films right like a lot of the time and i say this to somebody who goes to quebec quite frequently as you both know um, and, and spends time in that province and goes to Montreal all the time because it's pretty close to us uh, and sees movies there. The last movie that I saw before the pandemic was Invisible Man in, a, in an Odeon theater in, um, in Montreal. The, in, in, in Canadian cinema, a lot of the time, there will be the Canadian films, right? And then there'll be a couple of Hollywood movies. And it's never like a Canadian film directed by a Hollywood director. It's like, those are the films that are made here, right? And then there's a couple of Hollywood films that are being shown as well. And uh, for him to break through like that, uh, is just, uh, he's really a, an outsider. And he didn't get to this point until he was kind of in the middle of his career, right? Because he had 15, 20 years already out of, out of school making successful movies in Canada, you know, getting some pretty big Canadian film awards, getting nominated for some things, screening at Cannes and the Also Time Regard section. Uh, you know, like he had this career going and then he kind of broke through. And to me, I think Sicario is like, kind of when those things coalesce and we saw him become the Hollywood filmmaker that he has become, which luckily has not watered down at all the filmmaker that he was when he was an outsider, even though now he's an insider. Okay, I'll shut up. Yeah, I just wanted to respond to a couple of things. And this isn't to be a contrarian or disagree. Obviously, you guys can have whatever opinion you like. I just, like what Jamie, you were describing um, like Narcos and other um gang related or or like cartel related films and like i don't think 
Sicario is an exploration of that world at all. I don't think it's about finding out who's involved, et cetera. It's, it's an exploration of the characters involved yeah, and what it does to them mentally. That's I'm what not, it's about. Well, I agree. And I, I was like, trying to put to separate what Sicario is in compared to a lot of what you see, say like Narcos and a lot of other uh, films or shows that explore similar things. Sicario is not like any of those. In my that, opinion. That's true. And you actually, your description of it is much closer to what Narcos is. Narcos is actually much more of an exploration of what is this world about? Who's involved? How, what tactics do the police use when their hands are tied? And when um, the, the amount of money in these scenarios involved by the criminal enterprises so much that it's like, staying within legal boundaries um handicaps you and doing your job is really difficult like that's see that this is the thing i think in most of these films the setting and the facts and the circumstances are just they're all part of the setting they're just the background to really just doing what he says in another quote that i just noticed uh, while you guys were talking where he says i think cinema is a tool to explore our shadows um, and that's, I think the big difference and not to knock Narcos at all, because when you watch that show, it is superbly well-written and it's not, see, that's the thing. Like even that show is not about rooting for anyone. Um, I mean, yeah, you kind of want the police to win over the cartels and there's a little bit more honor in that. Uh, but you realize how dirty a world it is, but even like in Sicario, I'm not really rooting for anyone either. Um, it's just, yeah, it's the exploration of what these people are going through in this mess. And, you know, th these things parallel real life because everyone's life is a mess, right? They're just more extreme versions and more extreme scenarios of it, I think. The the term, like you used the term earlier, his films aren't uplifting. But I, I think, for me, I don't, I don't think that, I don't approach movies like I don't, for me, I don't need, not that are you, not that the term redemption is, I'm not trying to lie. I won't put that in your, in your mouth or anyone's mouth, but I don't, I don't think, I think his films are about people and they're about life and life. What is life is always an up and down. So I don't think, I think using that term might be a disservice to his movies because I think his films have so much hope and resilience and, um, passion for life and reawakening to life there's so much of that in there um but like life there is darkness and there is light um i always tend to hesitate to not that you're doing this i'm just saying this in general but i hesitate to cast things as black and white like oh it was great or it wasn't great or oh it was sad but it wasn't sad like i think his films are very complex very complex character studies about people and uh they're all over the place because we are you know, and one thing that I wanted to mention that people who have worked with Denis has said is how humble he is, how gracious he is, how kind he is. And I think that's what makes him, in part, what makes him a good filmmaker is that he espouses those attributes and you see it in his film. You see it in Amy Adams' character in Arrival. You see it in how she's portrayed. You see it in the love of how, she, how her character is written. Uh, and the tenderness between her and her daughter. Um, and that's D Denis coming out, in my opinion. And you see that in all of his movies. There's, there's this 
quiet, even though some of the stuff is really dark and really hard to stomach, there is just this, I don't know, this aura about his films that's very, like you can walk right through them. Even though it's tough, you, you, I, I don't feel like it's not, because I don't like to watch a lot of like, I'm just very sensitive about what I watch. So uh, Dan would argue with that. I watch a lot of garbage too. <laughs> um, but I, there's just something about his films that I, even with Ensemble's, it's very, it's just really tough subject matter. But he tells that story with such love and such grace that it doesn't, I don't feel like, it's just an honor. He, he, he honors it. And he honors his characters every time. And sometimes directors don't do that. Sometimes they're, they're telling a story and they don't care so much about certain characters. They don't care about certain things. Not that they don't care, but you can tell where their, their focus is. But his focus is everything and you feel it. Um, a note before we go too much further, because you, you mentioned Asan V, um, there, which, which is well, many of his films also contain very spoilerable content, right? So this is an episode where, like, we, we, I mean, I think we can try to be kind of oblique when we're spoiling things, but there will be, basically, go watch all of his films if you can. That, that way, this is a moot point, but also that way you're going to get to watch a lot of great movies. Um, but uh, in general, like, we can try to keep things a little bit kind of opaque in terms of plot. Um, because Asandi, again, is, it, that's a great example of a film where if you read about it, you go, just like Sicario, you go like, why the hell would I want to watch this movie, <laughs> right? And then you see it, and it's the most, like Jamie said, tender, um, you know, portrayal of things that are really difficult to talk about or really difficult to watch. Uh, and I think that is just a hallmark of his style. So I don't want to spoil the, the big thing in Asandi if possible. But I do want to, if it's okay, take a step back, do a little rewind, and talk a little bit briefly about how Denis came to where he is now, because I think his career is... Um, like I mentioned, interesting as being sort of an outsider, but also he's taken things at his own pace. And I think it's it's really paying off now. So I'll kind of get this started. Dan, I know you've got stuff to jump in whenever you want to. Um, you know, we'll go very kind of quickly through this. Basically, he was born in 1967 in Southern Quebec uh, near the St. Lawrence River, which is a gorgeous waterway that runs all the way up through that part of the country. Um, and uh, he grew up in the shadow of a nuclear power plant, which is something he's mentioned in interviews uh, and that was something that rubbed off quite a bit on his aesthetic choices for films like Blade Runner 2049. These, you know, megalithic, monolithic buildings that are, you know, belching smoke and steam into the air. Uh, and he was really captivated by that as a child. And it's something that he spent a lot of time looking at. Um, he didn't feel like he really fit in from a sports standpoint, didn't really fit in socially too much. He was always sort of with his head in the clouds. Uh, and so he started uh, getting really into science fiction largely through a gift from his aunt, which was a box of science fiction comics by people like Mobius uh, and people like Alejandro Hodorowsky, who of course directed Dune or was going to direct Dune before David Lynch did. And it's a legendary filmmaker and auteur in his own right, whom we've what, mentioned many times. What's his connection to uh, comics? Is there one? So I've seen yeah, so, so, so Hodorowsky has written a number of comics with Mobius actually. Um, among others, uh, and they're, they're, you can get them, they're still in print, um, and they are super like grotesque and interesting and uh, picaresque and fascinating. I can't remember what the name of the one that I have is. I have like a collected edition of it, but I will find it before the end of this segment, and I will say it. Um, but also, just to be able to see Mobius's illustrations, it's like, if anybody doesn't know the work of Jean Giraud, like he's just one of the most extraordinary illustrators in the history of, you know, 
any kind of design you can think of. Anyway, um, so he found this real kinship with the work of science fiction authors and writers. And that was something that happened for him relatively early on. Uh, he briefly considered going into science and then he decided that wasn't for him. But science fiction was something he kept coming back to over and over and over again. Um, I know, Dan, you mentioned earlier, he was big into Close Encounters of the Third Kind. He was big into 2001, A Space Odyssey. Uh, he loved a lot of these sort of, you know, space opera sort of large films, but Blade Runner was the one that he really fell in love with as a young person. He saw it in theaters. This is something we've mentioned before on this podcast. Um, he saw the original edition of the film with a voiceover, et cetera. For him, that's sort of the definitive edition of it. And it makes uh, so much sense that, you know, that the smog and the rain and the oppressive environment, like that just seems like something he would gravitate towards naturally. Totally. Um, and then he uh, decided to pursue this. So he went to the University of Quebec in Montreal. Uh, and while there, he started making student films. He won some competitions. And then when he got out of it, uh, he went to work producing some shorts for uh, Canadian broadcasting and uh, produced in that same kind of time period in his 20s and early 30s, uh, two movies, which were both to varying degrees successful. Uh, August 32nd being the first one, which none of us have ever seen. And Maelstrom being the second one, which none of us have ever seen either because it is $150 fucking dollars if we want to watch this movie. If anybody has this or a streaming code, please let us know because I really want to see, especially Maelstrom. It sounds absolutely fascinating. It's about a car accident. It's about a talking fish. It's a sort of magical realism film. I think it would be so fascinating to see. Anyway, he does those two movies. Uh, they are well-received but not, you know, huge runaway hits. And then he takes almost a decade off to raise his kids. He has three children. Uh, and while raising his kids, he takes this time to sort of reflect on who he is as an artist, what he's trying to say, what he's trying to do. And that is something that I respect hugely because I think as a parent myself, it's really hard to do that and to have the presence of mind to stop chasing your career every second, you know? And it's very, uh, it, it feels really good, I think, to step back and think like, okay, now that I have kids and I'm not going to work myself to the bone every day, what am I actually trying to say with my art? So that's something that I find personally very inspiring about Denis. Yeah, that's really um, cool. And then he comes back and of course has these two big, big, big hit films, Polytechnique and Ascendi, uh in 2009, I think in 2010. And that's really where he kind of hits the global stage. Yeah, Alcindy was um, nominated for Best Foreign Language Film. Best Foreign Language, it didn't right. win, but it lost. I mean, yeah, it did win, but you get nominated for an Academy Award. That's, you know, that, that's a stamp of approval right there. You can essentially do whatever you want to do for a while. Yeah. Uh, my did I miss anything, Dan, in there? Uh, no, no, no. That's a great start. I, I mean, I think it's it's interesting not knowing the scope or um, general feeling about August 32nd on Earth from 98, his first, his directorial debut and Maelstrom. Um, but that after, like you said, nine years, he's like, raise my kids, take nine years off. And then he walked in and made Polytechnique and Sundays, you know, one, which is obviously no spoiler about a school shooting, a mass shooting um, in, Mon in Montreal, I think. And then uh, in Sundays, which is a, war adjacent film it, it happens uh it's a story of characters interacting with each other and looking into their past during a violent civil war in a um non um, what do you call it unmentioned middle eastern country it's just kind of vague um but it's just funny that he walked in and made those two films which are two of his darkest um of all his kind of dark topics but yeah right um, like after that time raising his kids he's like i'm fucking done yeah. and i'm ready to get freaky <laughs> 
Yeah, I just think that's funny. Um, I, I'd also be curious to, I, I didn't read anything about this, but I'd love to hear um, kind of how him and Roger Deakins, uh, who found whom, um, Roger Deakins has been around for a long time. And again, when we talked about him uh, in prior episodes, like he'd been the cinematographer on 1984, for example. Um, so he's been making films for a long time and has been nominated. His films have been nominated uh, for Academy Awards of one sort or another, like over 30 times, I think. And he himself has been nominated as cinematographer until he won for his first one in 20, beginning of 2018 for Blade Runner 2049. Um, that was like his 15th nomination, I want to say. So it's interesting. Certainly at that point, I would say, I don't know about more successful, but certainly older and more experienced have done more films. So I'd be curious to know how they found each other because then, um, they made Prisoners, Sicario, and 2049 together. And I have to say, um, I think all the cinematographers I've seen have been great. And I think the cinematography has been great in all of Denise's films. But there's definitely something that's on another level and very special about his collaboration with Roger Deakins. And you really feel that um, in the films. Uh, I mean, Sicario was actually nominated, I think, for cinematography. Um, so yeah, there's, there's just something there. I mean, again, the, we were talking about this the other day, the opening scene of prisoners, which I'm pretty sure is the hunting scene. It opens on, on a forest and there's a, there's a buck or a doe, I can't remember that walks through and the camera sort of very slowly panning over the shoulder of the father and his son, uh, with a rifle kind of breathing and taking their time to take the shot. And there's just something about the way that the just the I mean it's so right like Deacon's magic is in his simplicity, and he says this if you if you guys haven't checked out uh, if the listeners haven't checked out the uh, uh, Deacon's uh, podcast um, I'm trying to remember the name of it right now it has Deacon's in the title but anyways that's a phenomenal podcast on filmmaking and cinematography and they do break down a lot of technical things like lighting but the theme that tends to recur there is Deacon's talking about you know, they teach you all this stuff and then there's all this traditional stuff. And it's like, here's the million different lights you're supposed to have. And like, sometimes it's all about having one bare bulb and moving things around and seeing how light affects. He's just such a, such a purist and not in a pretentious way, you know? And I think you see that in the way he lights his sets or the way he's using natural light. And there's just something about that feeling when him and Villeneuve get together which has happened three times so far when I see those films I'm just like man what, what a powerhouse of visual storytelling that those two create together and, and you know I don't want to um, not mention all the other people of course working with those films and the gaffers and all the other people it's obviously more than just a two-person project but there really is something special I think when those two get together I'd love to hear more about um, how they started working together in sort of their first projects. I believe that Denis went on the Deacon's podcast. Um, um, yeah, I one. haven't listened to that episode yet. I haven't heard right. it yet, but I'm, I'm sure mm -hmm. it's in there. I want to very briefly say it's Lankal is the name of the comic book, the in, the Incal or oh. the Incal. I don't know um, which which is the one that that Horowski and Mobius did together, and it's available in English and in French. And it's what really, the hell does that mean? It's just the name of the it's it's okay. the, the the Incal. Yeah. Okay. Cool. I N C A L. Anyway, go go on with Deacon's. Uh, no, I was done. I was just saying uh, it must have been interesting for them. And and they both have this modesty about them. And it's not related to not having done a lot of not being big enough because Deakins was already huge and already had plenty of awards under his belt. Um, 
and Villeneuve was coming up, but obviously had already won lots of awards and, and his films had been critically acclaimed consistently. Um, but you see that modesty in the way they work with people. And when you listen to interviews with them talking about how they select the professionals they're working with um, and how they interact with them. I mean, all I hear over and over again, not just from them talking about their approach, but from the people they're working with talking about their responses is how modest and how respectful both of them are in the fact that they really trust the professionals that they're working with. I mean, I remember when we interviewed uh, Mark Mangini for the sound, who's the sound designer for um, 2049 and how he mentioned some funny stories. If you guys haven't listened to the episode, go back and listen to it because it's really great. But um, he's talking about, you know, the times when uh, Denis got granular with him about some particular sound where, if, you know, he could count them on three fingers because most of the time he picks the right professionals and then lets them do their work and gives them that freedom. And even Deacons, you know, he had, um, he had a colorist and a person who did editing with photography and, and did all the filtering and all that kind of stuff on. And he's just so reverential and so respectful about what her craft is and what, part in um, the filmmaking process um, she had. And I just think that um, there's something about two people like that that must really be magnetic about their level of respect and empathy and understanding. And it's like, who wouldn't want to work with people like that? You know, I think it's really wonderful. In terms of cinematographers, he worked with a cinematographer, a cinematographer named Nicholas Bulduk. I don't know if I'm saying his last name right. And he was the cinematographer for Enemy. And if you look at Enemy in terms of the aesthetic qualities of the film, the lighting, it's very similar to 2049. And I think Denis has a look. He has a, a quality. Certainly, Roger Deakins is a titan, and he, we, you know when he's on set. You know, you know, he also won an Academy Award, I believe, for 1917 last year. Um, so that was his second. He certainly did, yeah. I think there was like... In, like three years or whatever. Um, but as amazing as Deacons is, Denny has a look. Deacons isn't on Dune, which is actually they're in reshoots right now. I think they're already over in Budapest. No, or in Jordan. I'm not really sure where they flew back to. Um, but Denny has a really specific look. Um, and you can see it all throughout his films. Even there's a, an almost a, an emotional tone to his films that come out aesthetically that's kind of hard to say, but you just, there's just something about him. And you, you see that, you feel that tone, you see that tone in Arrival, you see it in um, Prisoners. And I, I'm just curious though, what's the first film by Denny that you guys saw? Mine was Prisoners. You're okay. Um, Arrival, actually. Really? And I didn't, I didn't even know who he was until... I started digging into you guys' podcast and then started looking into film, started realizing he was going to be the director of 2049. That's when I started to look back into his films and I was like, oh shit, Arrival was an awesome film. Like that's a really good sign. And then I started to go back into his repertoire. Um, so yeah, so I discovered Denis kind of at the beginning of my awakening with cinema really and, 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 sort of educating myself on cinema. So, um, you know, th there are obviously even not being as much of a film nerd before there are still those powerhouse directors that you can't help, but know about because the films are advertised as the new Kubrick film or the new Christopher Nolan film. And so, you know, about those directors, um, but these more quiet, um, 
visual artist, uh, you know, Inyaritu comes to mind as well, um, because there's something to beautiful, for example, and the Revenant, which has a similar quality to Villeneuve working with Deacons. I see that, I see something that is, um, it's, like at the same time, surgical in its precision, while also having all this breathing room and really they take their time with everything and let the camera kind of float through the scene. And I think there's a lot of like in The Revenant, for example, there's a lot of um, sort of single take, you know, shots moving through like a battle, for example, and the lighting is just phenomenal. And as things change, they're still somehow keeping everything beautifully lit, but um, naturally some, too. Naturally, yeah. There's some similarities the there. That's that's what they were able to do with lighting there. That's yeah, a that's a framework movie. Oh, that's oh yeah, it's what they're able to do. And Yaritu in general is is somebody who I think does an incredible job with with lighting his films as well, like in collaboration with the cinematographers. But but I think oh, yeah. you're absolutely right that like something that he does that that um that that Denny does is they are, have the seamlessness to their aesthetic, where you don't. I mean, because you know we get so caught up on things like color grading and on things like luminosity and trying to make sure that matches that, that shots match each other and stuff. In the films of of Denny Villeneuve and and you know Yaritu and other people like that. Um, you're not even aware that you're watching a movie sometimes. I mean, especially in, in a film like The Revenant, sometimes you're just sort of like, am I like just in this right now? Like, am I fucking riding a horse? Like, I can't tell if I'm like watching a movie or if this is some like lived event that I'm remembering, you know? Yeah, that's, that's definitely a frame rate. We should well, talk about. there's one specific quality to Denise films that you'll see in someone like Inaritu or others where the camera doesn't feel present. The camera is doesn't feel like it's a camera. It just feels like you're in the story with them. Whereas a lot of directors, you feel like, oh, it's the camera is doing J.J. Abrams. I mean, or and Spielberg sometimes, or I don't know, a bunch of other directors. Whether Michael Bay, I don't know. Where you right. just feel the like the hand the, of the director. Christopher Nolan. I, I love Christopher Nolan, but I never feel like I'm not watching a movie when I'm watching. A Christopher I, Nolan I actually, film. I I would say yes and no with him i think he he it's i would say there's a a a, a dana, dynamic quality to the way he uses his camera but i don't feel like i don't feel like they're like oh yeah like let's hit the camera you know what i mean like it just doesn't feel like what's the word i'm looking for intentional it doesn't feel like they're like okay we're gonna take the camera we're gonna do all these crazy things mm. and it's gonna be a roller coaster Nolan's just telling the story and the camera's doing what the camera needs to do. I don't know. I, I think, I think, Nolan I think he's more showy. I don't mean that as a pejorative thing. No, I, know, I, I love know. Christopher Nolan, but, I, think but he's I, more I do showy. think he's more showy. He's more like, yeah. kind of like, here's like, I'm lighting the scene. Check it out. Yes, kind of absolutely. absolutely. Right. Whereas, whereas with Alejandro and Yaritu or, or with Denny Villeneuve, who I think, I think there's a kinship there. A lot of the time I'm kind of like, Oh shit, this is a movie. Like this is actually, this was, yes, but the camera, me. but the, the camera is still, and yeah. it allows you to breathe. And I think that's such a, an amazing quality. It's one of the, if, if I think about, uh, you know, directors in, earlier in their career, someone like Ridley Scott, he let that camera breathe. He let oh the God. audience Alien. breathe. Yeah. In Alien, Alien, the camera Blade literally Runner, breathes, I mean, right? Yeah. And in the beginning of Alien, the camera is what's pausing the pages to move and, and, yeah. and they kept it in this thing, right? Like they actually, the camera literally is just a breathing part of the environment mm -hmm. moving through it. Mm -hmm. And you don't even notice it until you see the movie a thousand times and you're like, oh my God, like why would there be air passing by this, these, you know, this shot right now? 
oh, it's because like we are the camera and we're breathing as we're walking past. The That's thing. hard to do. It's hard to, yeah. especially with today's technology, and you can do whatever you want to. And also digitally, you can do whatever you want to. And that's another thing that we haven't discussed yet. Denis has talked about that he doesn't like digital effects, and he's talking. He goes into into depth in terms of why films look the same. He's like because they use a a, a rote and they do all the shots all the same way, so it all feels false it doesn't feel real because it isn't real he will not do that and that's the quality about his films that i feel like it that's why they breathe is because they're not he's not doing things that other you know directors for hollywood studios are all doing and they're like okay we're going to shoot this on a blue screen and we're going to give it to our effects guys and they're going to make it look like a farm in 1920 you know he, right. he doesn't do that he goes and he shoots nolan does the same thing yeah, Nolan is to, the king of that, right? Yeah, he, to a different effect, but he does the same thing. And I really think that's what also informs what's speaking to us, is that what we're seeing is real. Yeah. 85 to it. 90%. Yeah, because you feel it. And what the characters are seeing is real. They're not acting to something that's... And I don't know in terms of Arrival, I think probably that's the exception, where those obviously those things weren't a big... Uh, creature effect they could have been part of it could have been a creature effect i'm not really sure i don't know how how they did that fully i mean obviously i think there's some CG most there. mostly cgi yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but you know i think i yeah. think that you you give into it when you know it has to be that mm -hmm. way but i think that when he has a choice like nolan um and like um i was reading this about actually um Bram Stoker's Dracula that um Coppola did where you know his Oh my god was, that's a great example of this. He he was on a mission of if we can't do it practically it's not going to be in the film, you know. And and again it, it gives you it gives you a different product that sometimes looks very realistic, other times ages a little bit because you're like, "Oh yeah, they were sort of limited by what they could do because they chose to do this with a practical effect." Um but I think that there's there's something pure about that um that instead of relying on as much new technology as you can possibly pump into your movie, I think these directors who have decided to stick with kind of old school techniques as much as they can sort of, it's like, um, it, it's almost the same concept as sometimes having too much of a budget makes a worse film because mm -hmm. you don't have any boundaries. And so you're just like, can blow things on whatever you want. When you have a constraint, it makes you more creative and allows you to really put a lot of thought into what you're doing and then be organic within the context of sort of those boundaries that have been set. And I think choosing to do things mostly with practical effects can do that as well. And again, there, there are different examples of it. Ridley Scott still does this to a certain extent, even when he has a 150, $200 million budget, or he's doing something like Prometheus again, for all its problems, you can definitely see the benefits of these ship sets that were built, that were built as much as possible from scratch physically there. I mean, we've talked about it a million times and, and there's something to that. And I think that, yeah, like Roger Deakins, all his actors really appreciate that, but I think Villeneuve that really pushes and, you know, maybe he did have sort of a slow start outside of Hollywood, but it feels um, like he's never compromised himself. He has a body of work that he can stand behind a hundred percent. He doesn't have to be like some actors or, you know, just people who are doing what they have to do. Sometimes you have to take, I mean, this happens a lot with, I think um, sort of the smaller people on sets, right? People that are, you know, gaffers and lighting people and all that. They're like, we can't afford to have a resume that only has phenomenal films, right? Like we, I got to put 
food on the table. Like I got to take the jobs that I can take. And Villeneuve has been fortunate and good enough to really stick to his guns and only do projects that I think he has very strong feelings about and that wants to do in a certain way and is passionate. And I mean, that's just a beautiful combination uh, that sometimes directors don't get to that point until way later in their careers. And, and Denis has been able to really break through and, you know, he's still what in his mid forties. And I think him and Christopher Nolan, are the, now, I think, okay. I think they're the two directors kind of to watch most closely because they're going to be two of the most incredible directors of our generation, I think. And then of course, Inyaritu, and there's lots of other people, but you know, this episode's about Denis. And, and, you know, to that point, though, uh, I think it's the Hollywood Foreign Press Association, or, or I don't remember which organization it was, but they called Denis the filmmaker of the decade. Um, and yeah, he, like, yeah, he won an award for it. Yeah, they gave and, him and an I, award for that. What, what a great, I mean, because his decade started with Ensemble in 2010, and now look where he is. He's just on top of the world in filmmaking, and he's becoming a name that everybody knows. Um, and I, it takes me back to this, what, something that I love about um, this experience of, of sort of of, of my life eliding with, with Denise's life in terms of, you know, being, being into film and being, you know, in my late twenties, early thirties, when I really fell in love with his work. Um, is that like, I got that experience of capturing a feeling like I caught lightning in a bottle. Like, you know, when I saw prisoners, I was like, Whoa, that is something that I've never heard any, I've never heard anybody else say his name before. And I know that he's brilliant, you know? that feeling of like, holy shit, I just saw a filmmaker that I am going to follow for the rest of my life now, you know? And sure enough, in 2013, when I saw, I saw Prisoners, I was blown away by it. And then I immediately went and saw Enemy, which for a time was like one of my absolute favorite movies. I, I still think it's easily in my top 20 favorite films of all time. I absolutely adore Enemy. Uh, and I was like, you know, you see Prisoners, which is, although it is obviously much more than, again, any you know, plot summary and IMDb would lead you to believe. It's a very complicated film. It is still sort of this like procedural, there's still kind of like, you know, it's still sort of a mystery. There's crime elements. It's something you kind of get your head around. And then Enemy, which is this crazy surrealistic, you know, uh, descent into something like madness that is full of the metaphor and illusion. And, you know, you don't know if what you're seeing is real. And he did those in the same year, you know, and, and I was just like, this, this is, this is somebody who I am going to be obsessed with. Right. Like, and, and, and then to have basically right after that, or Sicario come out and then Arrival come out and then, they, and then it's somewhere in the, in the period of Arrival coming out, I've learned that he was directing the new Blade Runner film. And I was just like, holy mother of God, this is so incredible. Just like you, I had, my first film was Sicario and it took me a while to go see it. Like I'd said before, my second film or what might have been Prisoners. Was Prisoners first before Sicario? I think so. Yeah, it was two years earlier. So yeah, I saw Prisoners first. Three years. Oh, no, I'm sorry, two, you're right, two years. Two, yeah. Prisoners and Enemy came out both in 2013. Okay, and then I saw Sicario. I, I was just seeing the films. I wasn't paying attention to who the director was, which I feel like, shame on me. I should have paid attention. Um, like I think of another film, uh, Now You See Me, Now You Don't, which is a film that I love. I didn't even pay attention to who the director was, and now, you know, it, whatever. Um, but those, so then I find out like you that he's going to do 2049 and then I find out Arrival's coming out. I'm like, okay, I'm there opening day or the night before to see Arrival. And of course it was, it was amazing, but it also like fucked up my shit too. I mean, it wasn't it, the whole opening. I, I remember the whole, 
I I saw that movie twice or three times in the theater because I didn't understand what had happened in the end. I didn't get it. And I still, there's still questions I have about the ending. I still don't fully understand what happened in the end of Arrival. What transpired? I mean, I get it, but I don't get it. And I like that. I like that. But one thing that I wanted to mention about Denis and his films, he does not talk down to me as an audience member. He, he knows that I'm intelligent. He knows that I'm worth engaging in conversation. And I feel like his films are conversations with the audience. His films aren't, sit down and let me tell you something. They're not telling us anything. It's sharing uh, a series of events, a character. And to be treated like that as an audience member, certainly I'm not, all three of us aren't your average audience members. We, we, we talk about films a lot. We understand them probably. We nerd we nerd out about them in different ways, not like your average audience member does, but I also think your average I don't know audience... who you're talking about, Jamie. <laughs> but I, I also don't think your average moviegoer is this dumb whatever. Not at all. I think movie movie audiences are terribly smart. Sometimes they go for an escape. Sometimes they go for a roller coaster ride. Sometimes they go to see a Jurassic Park movie, whatever. Um, but they want to be talked to as if they are you know, fully functional, smart, capable adults. And Denise films really, really serve that. And it's refreshing to me to experience that with his films. That Not only is he talking to me like I am intelligent, he's asking me questions as a, as a director. His characters are asking me questions. His characters are saying, well, what do you believe? What do you know? What is the right thing to do? And in such beautiful ways that I feel like, um, I mean, and even Enemy, which I still don't fully understand. I don't, I do. I was reading about that last famous scene, which I won't say what it is. I don't want to spoil that part of it. But the characters, like, I don't really understand what's happening in the film. I mean, there's a very literal, you could take it very literally, like it's, it's a film about, or it hosts, someone who sees his double and what that literally could mean. There's some, you know, like, you, you know, he's having a discussion with himself or he's losing a part of himself. That kind of like very peripheral way that people engage those types of stories. But that's not what, that's not what the film is about at all. And I really couldn't tell you fully what that film is about. I've seen it four or five times. And I love that. I love that I can keep jumping into his movies like 2049. Um, Prisoners isn't a movie that I can watch a, a lot. It's just so rough. And I don't even mean rough in terms of subject matter. It's just it's such a... It's a bleak movie. It's, it's, a, it's a descent into madness. Yeah. It's a descent into our worst nature as people. And I, that, that there's one, for me, iconic scene where he pulls out the refrigerator and he finds the door. And he goes behind that door and you see the light shining down from above on what he discovers and it terrifies me. I think I saw that in a trailer. I was like, oh shit. And I thought, is this like an exorcist movie? And like, I didn't know what I was going to see. Um, and it's phenomenal. It's phenomenal. Tell us a bit about, uh, you know, for people who might be watching this who, who haven't seen Enemy, if you had to describe it. I mean, it's very unusual film, to put it mildly. I think that the best way to describe it would be it's a Denis Arcand movie on acid. <laughs> or <laughs> or a, a, sub, a documentary about Jake Gyllenhaal's subconscious. It's it's really it's a it's a it's a the exploration of masculine intimacy. Uh, it's a very simple story. 
it's a man who decides to, uh, to leave, his, leave his mistress to go back to his pregnant wife. And we see the story from his subconscious point of view. So it's, it's like really a, a surrealistic movie. And it's a trailer. It's like a, a psychological trailer. And it's a movie that is designed to be like an enigma, a puzzle. Uh, the main quality that we were looking for is a playful. It's this movie that is designed to, to, to play with the audience. Well, so when you are sitting in the theater, you, I think you, you should come to see enemy with a play, uh, the, the desire to play. Can I, I, I don't want to come across like I'm shitting on Christopher Nolan in this episode because I, I really do love Christopher Nolan. Yo, Patrick, I really, yeah, yo, I, Dan, <laughs> I fucking love Christopher Nolan. Okay, but here's the difference between Denny and Christopher. Ready? I just rubber band at the camera. Uh, Christopher Nolan's film, so Enemy gets compared to Memento quite a bit. That's a movie that people talk about Enemy in the same breath as, which is fine. I love Memento. It's an awesome movie. It's great. What people a lot of the time say about the similarities between those two films is that we're presented with like a multi-layered mystery that kind of unspools as we go along and we kind of have to think non-linearly to figure out what's really going on. I think they're really different. Ryan, like really, really yeah, different movies. Like them really them. different movies. Who, who, who compares them? I've never heard this comparison, but I'm Me interested either. in it. Oh, but yeah, this is what people were talking about all the time when it came out. Like, it's like type, type in online, enemy... Okay. And Christopher Nolan and, and see, I, I swear to God, actually, you'll probably find CG, which is the actual enemy of Christopher Nolan. But you know, but if you look, uh, <laughs> if you look past that, um, anyway, the reason here's the difference. Okay, Christopher Nolan's films are films that say, "Look how smart I am." Denis Villeneuve's films are films that say, "Look how smart you are." To me, that is the difference. Christopher Nolan's movies are fun. You have to kind of think on your feet. You have to keep up with it. And he will present you with a number of breadcrumbs that you can kind of unspool the mystery from by the end of it. And maybe it'll be a little bit ambiguous. Maybe who knows if the top is spinning, blah, 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 blah. But at the end of the day, you're, you, you very clearly have a mystery to solve. Denny's films, Enemy being like maybe the best example of this, are films that he doesn't know the answer to either. But he's presenting you with something that has an answer to it. But it's an answer that we don't have words for. And what I love about it, what I love about Enemy is that when I watch that movie, which I still do and I still adore it, I, I have no idea how to interpret the ending of it. I have no idea how to interpret most of that film, but I'm interpreting it and I'm coming away from it with layers of meaning within myself. And then I dream about it and I dream about that spider walking over the city like a like some sort of a malevolent skyscraper. And I dream about that first scene where he sees the bellhop and I dream about what it would mean for that to happen, right? Of course, Enemy is based on a novel, right? A, an award-winning novel by, by Jose Saramago. Uh, you know, uh, Polytech, uh, no, uh, Ansandi was based on a play, right, from 2005. A lot of his material is based on other people's material, right? Which is not unique. That's something a lot of filmmakers do. But what I love about Denis is that he doesn't dumb it down at all, right? He doesn't make it any less powerful or any less strange than the source material. And with a film like Enemy, there is no way to interpret it that will conclusively say this is what this movie is actually about for everybody. You can determine it subjectively when you watch it. You can say, this is what I get from this experience, and I feel very strongly about it. And of course, when I'm watching it, I always am like, okay, this is what I get it. Like, I'm totally in this moment. And then what happens is I go to sleep and I dream about it, or, some, or I see somebody that looks like me on the side of the road when I'm driving. I'm like, well, what the fuck? 
And it comes back to me in these waves. And I think, what would it actually mean for reality to be questioned all of a sudden? What would that do? What are the implications of it? You know, and then you start seeing symbolism everywhere. And before you know it, you're back where you started. And then you watch the movie again. And that to me is the difference between somebody like Christopher Nolan, who I do love, but who I think is a little bit too overtly clever with his films sometime, as opposed to Denis, who presents us with this wonderful cornucopia of illusion and mystery that has deep meaning for him personally and deep meaning for the people who made it, but for us as well, even though we can't necessarily put a label. I on would it. disagree that, that Nolan is a look, look how smart I am. I don't think that Nolan, Nolan is also a very kind, respectful, relatively he's focused, but he's also known for being a really kind man. I, I don't, he doesn't, just, he doesn't allow sets. He doesn't allow chairs. And I just, movie sets you, because see, he says, if you're title, sitting down, you're a, not working. No, I just re I just read into that. And then they, there's more posts about it and a couple yeah. more things. And, um, a couple people are like, that's not even true. And even Nolan was like, you know what? I wasn't going to say anything, but anybody can sit down if they want to. And, uh, what's her name who said that, uh, Anne Hathaway had to actually clarify that statement because it's ridiculous and it sounded ridiculous. All right. Anyways, the, people the, magazine podcast. I, <laughs> I, I think, I think, but wait, wait, I, think, I just want to, to the point. I don't think Nolan is a look how smart I am. I, I just, that, I don't know. I don't, that, that puts him in this box of like, Oh, I'm so, I think he's a more of a magician in terms of his, filmmaking style and Denis is not a magician Denis approaches films different whereas Nolan approaches films like almost like they're a, a mystery box um Nolan is what J.J. Abrams could be if J.J. Abrams actually was put some thought into what he did um but Nolan I think is really really amazing not to I, I don't want to fall down this rabbit hole we can maybe do a frame right about Christopher Nolan at some other point but I think I don't know I just have I have a hard time doing like comparisons like they're that and they are that they're complex people they're complex directors i don't think that they fit any mold right but if we stick with the film comparison there are more answers that are objectively yes or no's in christopher nolan's films than in denise films denise puts more questions in his work than answers I think that is a pretty constant thing. I'm not making a judgment on who they are as people because of that. I'm just, that's just, and I don't even necessarily, yeah, I, I don't necessarily, I, I get what Patrick's saying about, you know, I think a better way to couch it so that you don't frame, uh, so that Christopher Nolan doesn't come off sounding like an asshole, which is not what anybody's trying to do here is I think, look how smart this film is. Look how smart this material is. And, um, work hard and you can find the answer to your questions. Memento is a good example of that, right? If you break that down, you figure out, oh, the black and white is moving forward and the color is moving backwards. I, I might have that reverse because it's been a while since I saw that. But I'm saying there, in fact, there's even YouTube videos where he like breaks things down. You could watch him on a chalkboard, break it all down and talk about his own film. I think Denise's approach is much more... Um, it's like mysterious, not because he's trying to make it mysterious, but because he, like Patrick was saying too, like he doesn't have the answer either. And he's approaching really complex things. In Enemy, it's the subconscious, right? He's trying to create a visual, and I, I do want to talk about Enemy more because it's such a complex film, but he's trying to create a visual, through a visual storytelling method, he's trying to show you things, which again, as often a film is, from the protagonist's point of view. The protagonist 
happens to be a person who probably has some kind of mental issues, but it's also, um, it's really viewed through his subconscious, through his dreams, through his fears. I mean, um, I could quote Denis on kind of him talking about the film. He said a couple of really cool things. Um, he said on Enemy, uh, when you make such a movie, well, like a lot of other movies, that is designed to print images somewhere in the back of your brain that will haunt you later. It's true that Enemy is a problematic. Maybe we should put a warning on it at the beginning. And, you know, I was watching it. I introduced it to my girlfriend for the first time, and she was really disturbed and really spent a couple of days thinking about it. Um, and we've spent a couple of days talking about it because, you know, she was like, I don't know, this movie kind of like frames relationships and men in like a poor way. And it's like, a, a, I feel bad for these women and et cetera, et cetera. And, and, you know, we talked about it and I was like, yeah, I don't love this film because I love the principal character that I think he's a great person. I love this film because deciding to approach a story from a subconscious point of view is so difficult to flesh out. Like, how do you storyboard that concept, right? And sure, he had a, I haven't read the novel, but he had a book to work off of. But I think that um, that is such a complex um, thing to even approach as a subject that you got to give someone credit for even trying. And so it's, it's perfect, really, that that film is confusing and you can watch it four or five times and get a little bit more out of it every time and get different things. But like, you don't have a bunch of answers in front of you. You're like, man, you'd have to, you'd have to be this character to really understand what he's going through in the way that it's displayed. But I mean, his la the last line in the film is what the fuck. And that's him saying it when he sees what's happening at the end, this visual representation of his fears and his subconscious. So, I mean, it, it's Do you remember the first line of the film. I don't. Chaos is order, yet undeciphered. Uh, right, that's that's that, right. That's written from the novel. Yeah. Um, here's another quote, and, and then I'll shut up from Villeneuve about the film. We all have multiple identities inside of us. I think it's about the power of subconscious and how our actions represent that side of the self and who is really in control. The influence of the past on our lives and the strength of the past is something that really impressed me and terrorized me because it means that we aren't totally in control of our actions. I think you can find power over it, but it's a process. And I think that's definitely one of the struggles that's depicted in the main character's um, storyline. But yeah, I mean, you, you finish that film and it's one of those watch it again, sort of watch explanations on it and what people interpret it as and what they think. Um, and then watch it again after you've heard that interpretation, see what you agree with and what you disagree with. But um, I, I like the idea that kind of both of you talked about. Uh, again, I'm not trying to make comparisons between Nolan and Villeneuve. I'm just mostly trying to describe Villeneuve's process by using other directors as parallel. I think they're both magicians, um, but it's like, they work almost in a, in a different medium. Like their craft is based on different types of magic. Um, and it's, it, it's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. I would say Christopher Nolan is, is a magician in the context of like the prestige, right? Like, like he, he presents us I'm, with something magical right. and then we can go and uncover what the secrets were behind it. Whereas I think Villeneuve at least kind of appears to be more of a mystic a little bit. The magic that he gives us is something that we're not going to get an answer to at the end of the show. There is something to this comparison that I think is worth maybe even doing a separate frame rate special on at some point, because they're two of my favorite filmmakers, and I know they're two of your favorite filmmakers as well. And they're so alike in some ways and so dissimilar in some ways that I think it'd be 
really fascinating to break down some of the reasons why. In terms of enemy, what I love about it is that we're presented with this, you know, he's a professor of like authoritarianism and, you know, regimes, right? Like he's teaching about like totalitarian governments, right? Um, and then the whole time, like he's basically like, like Denis was saying in the interview, realizing that he's actually kind of under this totalitarian regime without even realizing it, which is the regime of his head and the regime of the life that is sort of folding in on him without him having any control over it. And now all of a sudden, you know, he's becoming this like real fully formed adult with this relationship and a future and everything. And he's feeling like these webs are being tangled into his mind and it's externalizing with these spiders, but the internal struggle is what is a lot harder to put words behind. And that's what I think is so fascinating about it. I, I want to talk briefly, because I'm sure we'll do a frame rate. I, I put enemy on our frame rate list a while ago. So we'll, we'll definitely get to that at some point. Oh, we'll but, do. I'm sure we'll do individual frame rates on eventually on basically all of Denise movies, all of Nolan's about. films. Yeah, we'll do it. Oh, we'll yeah, we'll we get will. to it eventually. <laughs> but something with enemy that I think is interesting, and Jamie, you mentioned this earlier about the cinematography by Nicholas Balduke, is that it's uh, very definitely based on a color palette that is really strong. And I think one of, one of the other things I would say about Denise films is that I can, I, can, I can draw, I can get a little Pantone palette out and I can show you, I can point to a color and you can tell me which of his movies is that color. I really, I really feel like that. His sense of color is extraordinary. And I really think that, you know, Prisoners is blue, Enemy is yellow, right? Like Arrival is white. I think that they all have this very specific color palette to them that is so identifiable. What I think Side is interesting note. about, yeah. Side note on color, because when I when I got the backlight to my TV recently, I got like a multicolor backlight. Yeah. Where you can, and you, so you can only not just adjust the color, but you can adjust the brightness and the intensity of the color. So like you can start with red and make it more or less bright, but you can also fade the red so that on one end of the spectrum it's like a white with just a hint of red, and on the other end it's like a full blood red. And I've actually been doing that with these films. I've been picking a color. Alien was green and enemy was yellow and prisoners was blue. So it's nice, kind of, nice. it's kind oh, of really? fun. It's fun. It's fun to let your subconscious based on what you remember of the film, because you're starting the film and you, so I pick the, I don't usually change the color. So I pick the color when I start the film. And so it's based on the color that's in my memory of the palette and the feeling in general of the film. So anyways, for anyone who has a backlight or wants to get one, you can do it for pretty cheap, but it's a fun exercise and sort of, connecting your mind to the color palette of the cinematography and of, and of the film and of the feeling of it. But anyway, sorry to interrupt you. That's, that's so funny because I, I specifically was having a hard time when we had those lights before they fell off the back of our TV, picking the last of us colors because it started off golden. Mm. And then by the end of it, I didn't know what colors to use anymore, which says a lot about the ambiguity of those characters. It's a great game played if you don't have it already. Anyway, getting back to Denis Villeneuve. Um, I think that the attention to detail that you see is just unbelievable and, and a really big high level attention to detail production consideration is the color palette of these films. It's a strange thing to, to take words and to go into reality and to transform it in a movie and necessarily there's like a powerful transformation process. I'm trying to be as faithful as possible to the birth of the ideas of, of the screenwriter. And I say that always to uh, the screenwriter that I will be his best friend because I will give everything to protect his poetry and, uh, and at the same time that I will be his worst enemy because I will, <laughs> I will be a traitor, I will deform scenes, I will, I will, I will uh, cut dialogues, I will make it my own, I will be a bit of, of a barbaric asshole <laughs> with the material because I need to invade the, 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 the screenplay. Being a big sci-fi fan, I thought it would be like just when I said, all right, let's go, let's do a sci-fi movie, I was like, I thought it would be a, a, a lot of, of fun. 
and it's not. It's, it's, it becomes quickly a nightmare because you discover how difficult it is to get it right, to find the right idea, and to not to fall into cliches. And I feel it's insane how much people want to do things that they've seen before. It's so comforting, and it's tough to bring the crew out of that comfort zone. Speaking of prisoners, which again, similar years, so they, he was kind of, I don't, he must have not worked on them concurrently, but they came out in the same year. Um, but I was going to say that um, in Prisoners, he does, I wouldn't say he follows any kind of blueprint, but when you sort of rewind your mind back through the film, again, it's one that has a lot more answers. It's a, it's a mystery and like a, a criminal case that can be solved and you do get all the answers by the end in terms of what happened and who's at fault and um, like the same kind of work that the detective has to do, that Loki has to do. But I think that there are the bigger questions that that film brings up that stay with you. And that of course the film cannot answer what's the difference between right and wrong. What would you do in this situation? Um, at what point do you step away from the main character and say, that's too much. He's crossed the line and I wouldn't do that. Or I think he's wrong. Or I think he's now become just as bad as the, as the, as the antagonist. Um, those questions are super interesting. And so even in a film that is a, a little bit more forensic and a little bit more has more police work um, then he still leaves you with a bunch of difficult questions that you have to kind of examine for yourself and I think there's that concept that we've talked about many many times it comes up in Blade Runner and Inception um, of you know people get caught up on is Deckard a replicant or not or is the top spinning at the end and and again I for me what really really resonates um, is that the question is more important than the answer. What's important is the conversation that we're having right now um, and, and the conversation that anyone can have in talking about these films and asking yourself those questions, reflecting them back at yourself. What would you do in this situation? What's important to you? What do you think is the difference between right and wrong and good and bad? Um, and I think that's something that I really, really love about Villeneuve is that those things he does not answer for you um, because they're really subjective. And that's, that's a really important part of his, his writing and his filmmaking, I think. And he's asking a series of moral questions too, like you said, or like Patrick said, what is too far? How far were we willing to go with a certain character in Prisoners? How far? And he doesn't answer those questions. We don't know. I think maybe instinctively all three of us and whoever watches the film is like okay this is a bit much for me what are you even becoming now what is this even about those questions are presented um but i love that and it's it, it causes us to say well what is too far what is what is what is the right thing to do and sometimes the right thing to do isn't always black and white sometimes it's it's gray some you know what would you do if someone kidnapped your youngest son what would you do what would you do and he if doesn't you... and he doesn't tell us right that's yeah, amazing yeah yeah, he 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 asks that question and he asks it over and over and over and over and yeah. over again until yeah. you say, "I don't know anymore." Yeah, I need time with this. Like, I need to really think about and it. And how far would you go, and would that be too far? Certainly, if say you suspect your next door neighbor, say you suspect your next door neighbor has imprisoned your child in its basement. You don't know for sure, but you have a good suspicion. What is too far? Probably nothing, right? Um, but it's. It's it's a it's a it's a tough thing, man. And I love those questions as well, especially in in the world we're living in, where I feel like every every moment is a, 
a question of moral ambiguity. I mean, everything is morally ambiguous right now. Like, you, what is supposed to be the right thing to do? People are like, "Fuck that! I don't, I don't do that." You know, I mean, what is right and wrong anymore? I mean, most most of the antagonists in prisoners, it turns out, were victims the whole time, mm-hmm. right? And I mean, that's a that's a huge. I mean, spoiler alert, uh, but that's a huge turn in that film. Um, I know we can't talk about Last of Us too, because but but it deals with the exactly these types of questions: is yeah. how far when you've been wronged, um, or you're trying to save someone, when you're trying to do something that is ostensibly morally good, where is the line that you cannot cross? Especially because in these things, you often do not know a hundred percent who is at fault and what they have done and they're being questioned, et cetera. Um, and that film really throws things upside down on you so that if you made some of those calls for yourself earlier in the film saying, yes, I'm with this character, I would do the same thing. Fuck that guy. I would knock that guy's teeth out until he talks, whatever. And then by the end, you find out that these people had been victimized just as much as anybody else in the whole film. And you look back at your own actions, you know, not yours, but the actions of the main character that you had agreed with and think, right, like, fuck, I need to think about all the possibilities because some things you can't take back, right? And, and there's just, yeah, that, that level of questioning is just phenomenal, the way that he was able to lay that out in that film. Oh my God, quick, the more quick note. ending. Yeah, go ahead. Well, Paul Dano is also in, of course, Prisoners. His performance is riveting. It is amazing. It is devastating. And you think we know who he is and we don't know who he is at all. Um, but I wanted to reference Asandiz, which blew my mind. And by the end of it, I was repulsed and I didn't know how to feel. Again, a series of questions are being asked. What do you do in this situation when you are engaging the most horrible of horrible things? And I, I kind of want to talk about it, but I don't want to spoil it for people. So maybe we can have a frame rate on it where we will. Yeah, let's do, let's, are, I think we should do a frame rate on all of well, those movies. But to our nice. listeners now, we're going to do a part two of this because there's more. I mean, there's more about Asandiz that I want to discuss, like just in terms of who Denis is and his unflinching take on a very devastating story that there is really, it's hard to find good in it. And then you have people in, caught in the middle. Uh, I mean, I remember seeing that film and I think I stopped it at one point and then I started it again. That's how rough it was. Not because I just, I knew where it was going to go. But then by the end, of course, there is a little bit of a twist and I didn't see it coming. Uh, it's it's so much to process. But again, it was Denis really saying, well, what is the right thing? It's also a question of forgiveness too. What what is forgiveness? What does this mean? What and that question is posed in prisoners, in terms of forgiveness and um, when you you do go too far and how responsible are you? How are should you retain your humanity even when you have complete license to not and to forget it? Um, and it's a question that you know comes up in Blade Runner all the time. Where and we discuss this all the time in terms of who are we when we lose our humanity? And even if it's justified that you, you lose your humanity to find your child, is it justified? When and you, and that is something that Prisoners does so well. And this is why I'm really glad that we're going to talk more about it shortly with spoilers, especially because we need to. Because to me, like Dan, you were laying this out perfectly. Like when we, when like uh, Keller uh, Dover, the character that Hugh Jackman plays, 
when I look at the beginning of the film and, and, and I, and I said, you know, the first time I saw it, so the, the year that I saw prisoners was a year our first child was born. And I remember like going into this thing thinking like, if that happened to me, I would fucking bash the face in of the person who did it with a pipe with my bare hands, like until they were completely dead. And I, 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 I remember feeling like specifically, like I would absolutely annihilate this person if they, if they were to do that. And then you see what it's actually like for that to happen, right? Like you see what it's like when, when somebody actually inflicts real violence on somebody else, what that looks like, what it feels like. And again, it's that unflinchingness that characterizes so many of his movies. It's the same thing that characterizes Sicario. And it's the same thing that characterizes 2049, this completely unflinching commitment to what actual loss and violence does to people. Um, and I just think that that Denis is just a, a, an absolutely astounding talent in contemporary filmmaking. And and I think we should probably wrap this soon because it's getting to be pretty long. But I I definitely love the idea of doing another episode um, on on him and on what he did with 2049 specifically, because it is it is not surprising to me that 2049 ended up being miraculously good now that I know him so well and having seen what he could do. But 15 years ago, I would have I would have begged people not to make this movie i would have thought like you're just going to screw this up so much and then and then as soon as like we were saying as soon as you know we knew that that the news attached to it we knew something special was happening and it's the same feeling with dune which in addition you know on, on many levels is a movie that sort of should never be made right like it's a movie that already had the start stop failed you know pre-production uh, uh, you know failed development with Hodorowsky, with all these other things. Then, you know, the Lynch version came out. It was so controversial. Everybody kind of crapped on it for a long time. And then, um, you know, everybody who said that this movie can never be made was kind of, well, they were proven right because it's, you know, the books are not well adaptable to film, right? And then as soon as we saw that Denis was the one making it, all of us went, oh my God, this is going to be incredible. Like everybody who even vaguely knows the story of Dune is like, oh my God, we will actually see what it looks like. Because the last thing I want to say is I said earlier, my word for him was unflinching. My word actually for him is miraculous. I think that <laughs> Denis, I, I really do. I think that Denis is, is, a, is a miraculous filmmaker who does things that seem impossible and does things that are so brave and so strange and so beautiful that um, he brings us to places that like no other filmmaker alive right now, in my opinion, can bring us. I think he is a, a really miraculous filmmaker. I really mean that. That's a good place to wrap it. But before we wrap, we want to talk about Patreon. No, just uh, I would say we brought up frame rate a bunch of times, which if you guys haven't uh, gotten on our Patreon yet, um, you can go to uh, perfectorganism.com forward slash support or bladerunnerpodcast.com forward slash support. And uh, yeah, for starting at two bucks a month, uh, we have other perks for for higher level uh, tiers, but starting at just two bucks a month, you get access to uh, a minimum of two other films that we review every month. Um, I don't have the list in front of me, but we've done uh, Moonlight and um, we're, do we're actually gonna do Prisoners next. So that's coming out uh, this month. Um, and due to the pandemic, we started giving out some of them for free. We're still doing one free and one Patreon per month. Eventually, sometime soon, we're going to go back to behind a paywall. Uh, the ones that we put out for free will still be out there. So you still have access to those and they'll be in the regular feed. 
But uh, yeah, I wanted to, we wanted to give a shout out to um, all our patrons and thank everyone who's been contributing, especially during this time of pandemic. We know that's difficult. That's why we try and keep it cheap and, you know, try and keep it to like a cup of coffee per month, um, which is relatively affordable depending on what situation you're in. But um, yeah, we, uh, we want to continue to talk about different films and we do bring them into these later in our discussions, as I'm sure you guys do in alien related discussions on Perfect Organism, because again, there is uh, always a connection between these directors, writers, and uh, actors, and the and the crew. Um, but we do love the opportunity to be able to talk more fully about these films. And you know, we're learning a lot um, from each other and about cinema as we do it and as it goes along. We're learning a lot from our patrons who write in to us and on our Facebook groups and and have discussions with us like this one about these films so um, we really appreciate the opportunity to do it and we really appreciate all you guys' help and support to keep these podcasts going and to allow us to uh, do new things like you know do another audio drama at some point in the future and, and write more things so thank you guys very much and uh, we'll see you on the next episode if you would like to find out more about Shoulder of Orion the Blade Runner podcast please go to www.bladerunnerpodcast.com If you would like to support the show via Patreon, please go to www.bladerunnerpodcast.com forward slash support. Thank you.